from um, the microphone speakers, yeah. So, um, well, at a time when you can't exactly, you know, uh, draw a map and then just shove it in the Bible, although now we do, in the back of your Bibles, we probably have that. At the time that Joshua's writing, um, there was not an easy way to make copies of maps. And so you have essentially verbal descriptions <coughs> outlining <coughs> on a map kind of what you see on the back of those sheets. So that's the reason for that. And I do think that one of the lessons we want to take away from this is that God does very much care about those kinds of details of, of who gets what territory, how far does it go, <coughs> and so on. So um, we do want to be thankful for each of these places, even if we can't pronounce them because they re- represent God's faithfulness in time and history. So having said all that, like I said, we're not going to, I'm not necessarily going to get uh, in the <clears throat> minutia of each of these places. Uh, you can, I think, fairly easily get um, a better map than the one that's on your, on your handouts if you really want to see where these places are located. You know the general area we're talking about is the land uh, that we might call Israel today, uh, or the promised land as it's referred to here. And you can investigate that further. What we are going to do, and this is, I think, going to be the approach as we come into these allotment chapters, is uh, as there are things that require either explanation or perhaps give us some insight into um, into the faithfulness of God or an application some way, uh, we're basically going to kind of go through it um, big chunks at a time. So we will, Lord willing, cover all of Joshua chapter 13. And then um, depending on how many interesting things that we get tripped up on or I get tripped on as we study, uh, we may take one, two, three chapters at a time as we go through the rest of Joshua until we get to the end where it gets a little bit more uh, interesting once again. So if that doesn't make sense, I think it'll make sense as we get into it. All right, Joshua chapter 13. We will. I'm going to read... The first seven verses, and then I'm not going to read the rest of it for sake of time. Uh, Again, mainly just names of places and things. I will refer to some of the verses, though, so be sure to keep your Bible open. Joshua chapter 13, beginning verse 1. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And Yahweh said to him, you are old and advanced in years. And there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains. All the regions of the Philistines... And all those of the Geshurites, from the Shehor, which is east of Egypt, northward to the boundary of Ekron, it is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and those of the Avim. In the south, all the land of the Canaanites, and Mirah that belongs to the Sidonians, to Aphek, to the boundary of the Amorites, and the land of the Gibalites, and all Lebanon toward the sunrise, that is to the east, uh, from Baal Gad below Mount Hermon to Lebo Hamath, all the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon to Misrephoth, Maim, even all the Sidonians, I myself, that is Yahweh speaking, I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel, only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance as I have commanded you. Now therefore divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. 
Now we begin with these opening words. You know this is a new section of Joshua because there's kind of a, a sudden clear marker of time and sort of a switch of subject. Remember last time we had this list of all the kings that were defeated by Moses and Joshua. Uh, and before that you essentially had uh, the, uh, the, the chronicling of the conquests in southern Canaan or the southern part of the promised land and the northern part. So you got a lot of conquest language. And then you come to this passage which... Uh, reminds us of a few things. Now, it's not just reminding us that Joshua was old and advanced in years, although I, I, I couldn't help but laugh when I read it because Joshua is likely the primary author of the book of Joshua, and um, he could have just wrote, Yahweh said to Joshua, you're old and advanced in years, but he took the time to write, now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and Yahweh said to him, you're old and advanced in years. Well, um, <laughs> like, I think that's just Joshua agreeing, like, yeah, I, I was, I am. I was really old and, and advanced in years when this happened. But, of course, there's an emphasis there, too. Whatever was going through his mind, it is God's intent by the Holy Spirit to emphasize that he was old at this time. Now, how old is old, you might ask yourself. Um, if you remember, Moses died at 120. So there's already a sense at which the people at this time, they lived a little bit longer than they do now. Well, we'll get there, Lord willing, um, soon. But in Joshua chapter 14, Caleb is speaking, and he talks about, and uh, you don't have to turn there, but just like a page over, um, that he is 85 years old. That's in Joshua, or, yeah, Joshua 14, verse 10. So if you remember... Who were the only two people out of all the wanderings of the folks that came out of Egypt that survived that besides Moses? This is Caleb and Joshua. Remember, they were the two spies that said, uh, we can enter the promised land. God is going to be with us. We can totally conquer the land now. And then all the people instead listened to these other spies. These 10 other spies said, uh, that, that said there were too many and they're huge and we can't take them on. So Joshua and Caleb alone are allowed to uh, come into the promised land. So here they are. If you think that they're kind of near in age, you might assume then that Joshua at this point is somewhere in that 85-year-old range. Now, that's old. It's not quite as old if Moses, you know, lived to be 120. Um, but relatively speaking, that's still, um, that's still old. And uh, the, the text makes a... A clear statement of that. Now, almost every commentator then makes this point that you still are useful to the Lord, no matter what age. God can call you at any age of your life, young or old, um, in order to be of use to him. So age is not a limitation as far as the purpose and plan of God goes. And you could even say something like this, that for the Christian, we are to wear out and not rust out if that makes sense. You know, something rusts when it's not being used. It's sitting in a corner. But if you're regularly using it, uh, keeping it in good shape, um, things might wear out. And that seems to be the way we are to live our Christian lives, is that we are always being of, of use to the Lord in some way. Um, there's never an excuse not to be looking for ways for the Lord to use you. But in this case, um, there is sort of a, an encouragement there, like Joshua... You, your age is not an excuse for your obedience, but there's also a little bit of a discouragement there, isn't there? That there still remains a job to do, and the assumption is you didn't quite finish all that the Lord has commanded. 
Now, we talked about a little bit when we're in Joshua 11, 23, when it says there that um, Joshua took the whole land according to all that Yahweh had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. Well, Joshua 11 seems to say that, no, they did completely conquer uh, over everything. And we talked a little bit then, I won't reiterate it too much, uh, about uh, there is a little bit of a distinction between, say, militarily conquering the land and there being no resistance and actually possessing and allotting the land and your people living there. Um, I'm not trying to make any social or political commentary, but it's sort of like someone being served an eviction notice. The, the person or people living there, they're not technically allowed on the property anymore, but they live there. They're in the spot. Um, but clearly there's a difference between a paper notice being taped onto the door and someone saying, you need to get all of your stuff out. Someone is moving in and take, you know, removing the person. Now, on paper, they don't, they're not allowed to live there. It's not, uh, they have no right to that property. But in actuality, there they are. Their, their bodies are right there. They de facto are sort of in the land. So uh, it's somewhat, you know, you don't want to take that analogy too far, but it's, it's sort of that idea. Uh, you can say that the Israelites, they had demonstrated clearly their dominance and their claim to the promised land by conquering all these lists of kings that we went through in Joshua 12. There was no r- resistance left in terms of military campaigns. You remember, uh, it said there that there was peace in the land. But the, the, fact, the, the, the fact of the matter was that people still lived in these towns and cities that the Israelites were supposed to occupy. And in some ways, they just didn't have even the, the people to live in those towns. And so uh, there they were. Um, Roughly speaking, the locations and people groups here are describing essentially regions covering the whole promised land. The, the land of the Philistines was on the coast in the north or the southwest uh, by those uh, cities. I think on the map you can see there um, named um, uh, Ashdod and Gaza and things like that. But basically that uh, southern portion closest to the Mediterranean Sea, that was the land of the Philistines. And as uh, Joshua lists these different places and peoples. They're basically going north and then clockwise around the Sea of Galilee. In other words, there were still people all over the promised land who, who still remained in the land um, who were not uh, cleared out. And uh, this is actually not unforeseen by God. Um, if you go to Exodus chapter 23. Now, Exodus is way back at the time of Moses and they have, um, they have escaped or uh, been saved by Yahweh from the slavery in Egypt. They are discussing uh, the new laws, the new constitution, really, that will govern Israel as they come into the promised land. They haven't wandered through the wilderness yet. They haven't uh, sent out spies yet. This is very, very early on after they have escaped from Egypt. And God said this in Exodus 23, 27 through 33. In the context of going into the land of the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and so on, he's going to, or they are going to be commanded to take them uh, or to uh, wipe them out. And starting in verse 27, God says, I will send my terror before you 
and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness of the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Now mixed up in all of that is warning is prophecy in the sense that's exactly what's going to happen, is a hope and a promise, but also a judgment. It's all wrapped up in there. And when you read a lot of the um, covenant, or not the covenant, but the law passages from Genesis to Deuteronomy, it's kind of interwoven like that constantly. Like some of it is God saying, you know, this is what's going to happen. Even though I'm warning you about it, now I know that it's going to happen. And it's all like prophecy and blessing, and hope, and judgment, and rebuke, all kind of wrapped into one. And you sort of read that there. Uh, but in any case, there God is clearly saying, I'm going to drive them out. And I'm not going to do it within a span of one year, but over the span of many years. And so in some sense, Joshua 13, it's not an unexpected situation. It does sound like a little bit of a rebuke to him, and yet it's not unforeseen as far as God was concerned. Now, what are the reasons that he lists? for why he's going to do it this way. (laughs) He gives two. One is animal control, and the other is uh, the cultivation of the land. So at least in Exodus 23, part of God's care of the Israelites is that he's going to let some of these inhabitants stay so that they can continue to work the land. Because what's going to happen is if uh, the Israelites are not able to immediately inhabit these towns and cities, but all the people are driven out, you know, the land is going to go crazy, you know, in terms of no one to till it, no one to cultivate it. It's a desert, so it needs a very active management of the agriculture. And uh, what's going to happen is if there's no one to till the land and plant and so on, the wild beasts are going to roam free, and then they're going to have to fight a bunch of animals for the land. So it might sound a little bit um, peculiar, (laughs) You know, this is God's plan, is he's going to leave these Canaanites there who shouldn't be there, but in a way, God is going to use them to keep the land from getting going bad and from animal dominating. So that's why he's going to leave them there. So animal control and uh, cultivating the, the land is why God is going to let the Canaanites linger, because in a way, the Israelites are not going to have enough of a population to inhabit all these towns. Does that make sense? I mean, it's just really God caring for um, the Israelites and trying to uh, do good to them, to bless them, even in in sort of a small way um, or in a very detailed way. Like, yeah, I mean, it would be bad if you came to this town and uh, it was overrun by animals and beasts and the land was all uh, messed up because there's no one there to, to properly cultivate it. There's another reason that God allows these Canaanites to linger. So even as he's sort of rebuking Joshua, He's already prophesied that he's going to let the Canaanites linger for animal control, for the preservation of the land, but also as a test and as a training bed. 
You go to Joshua chapter 3. So Judges is right after Joshua. And in Judges 3, we're talking about this uh, remnant of Canaanites that stayed in the land. This is what uh, is written about them. Judges 3. Now these are the nations that Yahweh left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. That is the conquest with Joshua. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines. So we talked about that same list in Joshua 13. And all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. So those are familiar places in Joshua 13 as well. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of Yahweh, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Now you hear, if you remember, a parallel to Exodus 23, when God said, I'm going to little by little drive out these people before you, but don't serve their gods and don't marry with them. So what did they do? Judges 3 says that is exactly what they did. So um, it's a little bit almost paradoxical. It's like, you know, God wanted to leave the Canaanites to test them, knowing in a sense that they were going to fail. But he also wanted to train them for war against the Canaanites. But even then, if, if they had just completely conquered them, they wouldn't need to prepare for war. Does that make sense? So, for example, the Philistines, they ended up becoming a major enemy of the Israelites. The time of Judges, let's say it's around um, like 1400s, 1300s BC, and a couple hundred years after that. The time of David is about 1000 BC. So there's a period of a few hundred years that the Judges reigned, and all these you know, shenanigans and Judges are happening. Who did David fight? most famously, Goliath. And what was he? He was a Philistine, okay? So for hundreds of years, right, the Philistines end up being the thorn in the side of Israel precisely because they didn't do what they're supposed to do, but also there was this plan of God that they would be a thorn in the side so that they would learn to do war, of which, of course, uh, they did fight the Philistines. They didn't resolve the Philistine issue until the time of David, Um, So it gave them an opportunity. But at the same time, if they had just wiped out all the Philistines, would David need to ever fight Goliath, right? So it's kind of like a paradox thing. Um, And while Egypt did fight against larger powers, so um, let's say that they did wipe out all the people, there's kind of this idea that Um, there were other powers in the area. You had Egypt, and you had like the Assyrians, and the Babylonians that would come on later, and the Persians, and so on. So, oh, what if they had wiped out everyone as they were supposed to at the time of Joshua, and so they didn't learn war, you know, and they got soft. And so when these other nations got powerful and went up against them, well, because they got soft, they would have been conquered, you know, that, that kind of idea. And that's why God had to leave some of those Canaanites so that the Israelites could be uh, ready for war and so on. Um, but 
what was the reason that they lost to, say, the Egyptians or the Syrians and the Babylonians? Was it a lack of warcraft? Was it a lack of ability to raise an army and train them? Is that why they ever lost battles when we read through the book of Joshua? The reason that they lost any battle ever was not because of a lack of military experience, but because they failed the most simple premise of fighting wars in the promised land. What is the most simple single premise of fighting wars in the promised land? Who must fight the battle? The Lord. We've learned that lesson over and over again. So what is it that you need to do? Trust the Lord. Obey the Lord. Just honor the Lord, and he will fight your battles for you. You look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 11. And this is similar words. Again, Deuteronomy is uh, given to those Israelites who are about to enter into the promised land. This is just before the conquest with Joshua. So these are the armies and the adults and the people who are going to step with Joshua into the promised land and do all the, the conquering and the conquesting. And Deuteronomy 11, this is what Yahweh promised. He said, verse 22, For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving Yahweh your God, walking in all his ways and holding fast to him, then Yahweh will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your territory shall be from the wilderness to the Lebanon and from the river, the river Euphrates, to the western sea. No one shall be able to stand against you. Yahweh your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread as he promised you. So what is supposed to be their battle strategy? It is simply to obey and trust the Lord. Simple. And yet... (laughs) it's clear that what causes their downfall truly is not that they did not learn war like they should have. I mean, uh, I I know I'm kind of hitting you with a lot of different ideas here. And and in a way, um, the Lord, when he speaks to them, he's speaking, you know, outside of time. And he's able to lay down these paradoxes of, I'm going to drive them out little by little for this reason. Um, Don't fall into the trap that they're going to lay for you that is going to cause you to lose, which is not a military ambush. It's not a military uh, strategy. It is if you go and you serve their gods. That's the test. In a way, that's the military test even for them as well. So no matter how you look at uh, this with God's divine knowledge of what's going to happen, with the seeming rebuke to Joshua, you know you haven't conquered you know, the land yet. When you sort of reduce everything down and and boil it down. And it's not to say that military strategy doesn't matter or that, you know, geography and battles don't matter. Those are all interesting and fascinating. But when you really boil everything down in terms of the conquest of this land, really, 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 it is about can you serve the Lord and trust him or not? (laughs) And if you don't, you will not conquer this whole land. And the fact that they didn't or they failed to, what does that say? It tells you that it wasn't for a lack of military strength or power. It was because of their disobedience to the Lord 
that caused them not only to not truly conquer the promised land, but also then to go through hundreds of years of, um, of, of falling into the hands of these peoples that they should have wiped out at the beginning. So it's kind of a self-perpetuating thing. If you'd wiped them all out, you wouldn't be in a position to be tempted by them. But the reason you didn't wipe them all out is because you were tempted by them and thought, hey, I mean, they're, they're wives, good looking, they got good food over there, they're idols, they seem a little bit more snazzier than Yahweh, you know, and I, I kind of like the whole, we're going to talk about the golden calf in, in just a second, um, but, you know, I kind of like having an image to worship, and so the reason that they did not wipe out these people groups is because they were tempted by these people groups. And because they're tempted by these people groups, they did not wipe out these people groups. So the Lord understood. He knew all of that. But that's what we're kind of looking at when we see a passage like this where it doesn't quite seem like they've done uh, what, what God had really promised in the land that he had intended to give them, even though they had, in a sense, military dominance that these people were not going to put up a fight, that they could have easily gone in and the Lord was going to drive them out. Why didn't the Lord drive them out? Was it a failure on his part? No. It's because the people did not have the will or the desire to because they were tempted to follow the same gods and follow the same uh, rituals and cults of the people around them. So um, I think there's something to say there in terms of application. It is not any less true that any situation, I know we said it already, so I'll beat this uh, horse uh, much deader than it is, but in any situation that you're in, that is what the situation boils down to. Are you going to trust the Lord or not? Are you going to do things his way or not? Or are you just going to be stubborn and do it your own way? Well, I'm telling you, in the Bible, it's so clear. That doesn't work out ever. Maybe you need to experience it for yourself, and that's you know within the discipline uh, of the Lord to do that. But uh, if I could save, you know, my children any pain or you any pain, learn the lesson here from the Israelites. It's not about your works. It's not about your cleverness. It's not about um, what kind of deals you think you can spin or how you can manipulate people or how much power you have. The only thing that matters is, are you going to trust the Lord? And is your trust going to manifest in obedience and submission to him. That's how you win. That's how you conquer. Even if it looks like you lose from the perspective of the world, God is going to be victorious through you. Okay, that is sort of summing up um, just some of the lessons there, and I encourage you to, you know, come up with more lessons, of course. We get now to verse 7 uh, through 9, and uh, I'll read those verses, and then again, I'm going to kind of leave off the rest there. Uh, now, therefore, divide this land for an inheritance to the, to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. With the other half of the tribe of Manasseh, the Reubenites and the Gadites received their inheritance, which Moses gave them beyond the Jordan eastward, as Moses, the servant of Yahweh, gave them. What is going on here? Well, we need to do a little bit of uh, remembering. Again, we talked about this before, but technically where God wanted the Israelites to settle and kind of rule over the whole promised land, which is not just the sliver that we see on the map on your papers, um, but really it's an entire big region. God had intended for the Israelites though, to settle in a certain portion of it west of the Jordan um, and uh, assert their dominance over that whole region from there, okay? 
Now, if you remember, Reuben and Gad and half of the, the uh, Manassehites, they were there on the east side of Jordan and said, well, but this land looks pretty nice. I mean, we could be here. And I promise you that if you, when you go into battle on the other side of the Jordan River, we'll be right there with you. We'll supply the manpower and everything. But hey, we want to settle in this land. So this is the land that we're talking about on the east side of the Jordan River. It's sort of a concession that Moses and by extension the Lord allowed for them to settle on this other side. And now Joshua is trying to present the unity of it all, even though there's kind of a weird thing. So you're talking about nine and a half tribes settled on the west side of the Jordan River. Um, so what, is, what does that all mean? Uh, why are there half tribes and all these things? Well, you look at your map, you see again Reuben and Gad on the east side of the Jordan. And Manasseh, sometimes called the half tribe of Manasseh, is called that because half of them settled on one side of the Jordan and half of them settled on the other side of the Jordan. Now we get to a question here. Um, who, who here wants to try and name all of the 12 sons of Jacob. Does anyone have that? I used to have this memorized in seminary, and as soon as I didn't need to, it was gone. So, you know, maybe if you gave me enough time, give me a couple hours, I could probably figure out who all they are. But, <laughs> well, who, does anyone happen to have it committed to memory? I mean, I had a really clever mnemonic device for remembering it, and you know what I did? Forgot the mnemonic device. So <laughs> that's the way that goes. Like, it was really clever. Uh, but they are. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. So those are the 12 sons of Jacob. But when we talk about the 12 tribes of Israel, it's a different list. What's, what's, what list is that? Well, I don't think that's listed on your paper, but let me, let me give it to you. And maybe as you look at the list of the names, I know it's really small print. I didn't know how it was going to print out, so I apologize. But maybe you can spot the difference, all right? So here are the 12 tribes of Israel, not the sons. Reuben, Simeon, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh. So what is different there. Well, you're missing one son. Which one? Huh? Joseph. Or actually, yeah, you're missing two sons, actually, right? I'm sorry about that. Missing two sons. Which ones are you missing? Joseph and Levi, okay? And you're adding to replace them, so to speak, who? Ephraim and Manasseh. So who are Ephraim and Manasseh? They are the sons of Joseph. Now, I won't go through the whole story of, uh, of Joseph, but you remember that he, was, um, he had the coat of many colors, I think there on your, on your little graph of the family, uh, the sons of Jacob there, he's got the little coat. And remember, he was the favored child amongst his brothers. He ends up being uh, a victim of the jealousy of his brothers, gets sold into slavery, ends up eventually, I'm going to shortcut the story here, in Egypt as the second in command underneath Pharaoh himself. And through God's sovereign providence and working through Joseph's faithfulness, faithfulness uh, he ends up saving the lives of his brothers, their families, his father, uh, and the whole, basically, Israelite people. I mean, God 
essentially kept the Abrahamic covenant promise through Joseph. Now, Joseph basically grew up in Egypt. He was kind of a, became almost an Egyptian at heart at that point. So when it came time for Jacob to bless his children, right? Joseph said, don't give me the inheritance. Give it instead to my sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born in Egypt. I mean, they were Egyptian um, kids, you could say. Um, And so that is exactly what Jacob does. He blesses Ephraim and Manasseh. Technically, um, Ephraim was younger and Manasseh was older, but in the whole theme of Genesis seems to be that God um, blesses the one you don't expect to. He ends up giving Ephraim, the younger one, the greater blessing than Manasseh. You can look at Genesis um, 47 and 48 for kind of the story. So that's where you get the 12 tribes being a little bit different than the 12 sons. Does that make sense? So instead, you don't have Levi and you don't have Joseph. In Joseph's stead, you have Ephraim and Manasseh. Well, hold on. What's the deal with Levi? Now, if I'm not going to read it, but from 9 down to 13, you're talking basically about that whole region on the east side of the Jordan that's going to go to the half-tribe, half of Manasseh, the tribe of Reuben, and the tribe of Gad. All right, so that's kind of the big picture area. And then after that, you're going to get um, the borders and boundaries of, of each one of those tribes. So Gad, Reuben, and then the half-tribe. So that, that's what's going to happen there. But notice in verse 14, he mentions, first of all, the tribe of Levi, To the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. The offerings by fire to Yahweh, God of Israel, are their inheritance as he said to him. Well, what's going on there? Why are the Levites seeming to get the short end of the stick? Because if you look at the the allotments there, they're not represented. And the first one that is described by Joshua as to who gets what, Levi's mentioned first, but only to say, yeah, they got nothing. So what's going on here? Well, you got to go back to Genesis again. Um, and again, this is, uh, the way I'm going through this is basically trying to help us understand passages that might be, aside from funky place names, just trying to um, explain some of the context behind uh, these passages. So I think it was worthwhile to go into a little bit um, what happened with the Levites there. Okay, back in Genesis 34. You can turn there if you want to. At this time, we are still talking about Jacob and his children, his many children. And they got into all kinds of of messes, unfortunately. So one such incident involved um, their sister, Dinah, who was uh, basically raped. And in retaliation for that, two of the sons... Simeon and Levi, uh, they exacted revenge. Um, they, <laughs> and circumcision factors into this as uh, we're talking about this morning. But basically, they deceive the man uh, who, who raped Dinah into saying, look, we can make this square, but what you need to do is everyone among you, all of your men need to be circumcised. Because again, circumcision was a sign of the covenant. And so this was like, all right, 
you know what, you did this horrible thing, but you can own up to it. You just, all of you need to get circumcised. And you're, you know, it sounds like you're going to have to be one of us now. And uh, apparently Hamor thought that that was, um, uh, who's the father of the man who, uh, who raped Dinah, said, okay, that's acceptable. So they all get circumcised, all the people in this, in this house, in this tribe, okay? While they are still sore from this, you pick up in Genesis 34, 25, on the third day when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain, so that's the other brothers, and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? This is just one of those stories in, in the book of Genesis. It, it doesn't always necessarily give you like a clear moral like ending, like Aesop's fables. So therefore this. And instead, you look at this and you say, uh, yeah, there's just a lot of sin going on, right? Should anyone ever be raped? No. Should you ever deceive someone who's done a wicked thing instead of bringing, say, judgment, tricking them, and then killing every male in the guy's tribe and family? Probably not either, especially when you're worried about your, you know, retaliation, right? This is how, uh, you know, gang wars and, and rivalry, rivalries and feuds start. So you can just look at this, and it's okay to say, like, everyone's awful here. <laughs> you know, everyone was just, this is just a display of sin. You know, the narrator doesn't try to necessarily give a moral out of this. It's just, there's a lot of sin that's happening here um, at the time. So in any case, um, there is uh, this stigma, in a way, over Simeon and Levi for this violence. Now you might say, well, come on, like, you know, they're just trying to defend their sister's honor. Well, was it the right way to do that? We can argue about that later. In any case, when we get to Genesis 49, and again, this is when Jacob is blessing all of his sons. And so we already talked about when, we, when he got to Joseph, Joseph said, don't bless me, bless instead, give me a double portion of blessing by blessing my two sons, right? So in the same context where he's giving blessing, look at what, um, look at what he said to Levi. This is uh, Genesis 49, verse 7. Now we'll start in verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. It's thinking back to that incident with Dinah. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined in their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So there is kind of a... Um, you know, in a context of trying to bless people, he gives this curse to Simeon and Levi. And Levi seems to bear the brunt of this. And in a sense, um, there is a fulfillment of this and that they have no place in the promised land. Levi has no place. They are scattered amongst the promised land. They get no place to call their home. 
Now, what's interesting is at the time now of Moses. So again, hundreds of years pass where the Israelites go from being honored in Egypt to becoming slaves. They become numerous, and then that's when Moses is raised up to um, be their hero, their champion, who will uh, be God's spokesman and God's ambassador and set them free. Um, They go to Mount Sinai where Moses receives the Ten Commandments. And what are the people doing at the foot of Mount Sinai as Moses is receiving the commands, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any graven image. What are they doing? Um, Aaron is making a golden calf for the people to worship. And of course, you know, he comes up with this bizarre story that, you know, they just melted a bunch of gold and just outsprung this golden calf. It was crazy. Can you believe it? Now, I mean, obviously, he's just trying to cover himself. But what happens after Moses rebukes them, throws the Ten Commandments, the original set breaks them, he gets the Ten Commandments back again, okay? Um, And here's what happens in Exodus chapter 32, verse uh, 26 through 29. So he sees the people, they're going nuts, (laughs) <laughs> you know, cavorting and, and worshiping this idol. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, so it's Exodus 32, 26, who is on Yahweh's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, the tribe, okay, of Levi. Levi. And he said to them, thus says Yahweh, God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of Yahweh, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Now this is kind of crazy when you think about basically these men, by their violence, right, had brought this stigma upon Jacob when they were defending the honor of Dinah. They used their swords to kill these pagans who, like, one of them for sure deserved it, but did everyone deserve it? And in a way, it comes back to them, right? These are men of violence who used their sword for evil, so now what must they do? What did they do? They became willing to raise a sword against their own countrymen, for acting more wickedly than even the pagans did. In a way, you know, they had done a worse sin here at the foot of Mount Sinai than what happened to Dinah. As wicked as it is, of course, I'm not trying to diminish at all, you know, the the horrific nature of, of rape. But here are the Israelite people as a nation. That's the sin of one man. Here's the Israelite people as a nation, who have been rescued miraculously, gloriously by God from Pharaoh through all kinds of miracles and 10 plagues, the death of the firstborn. And here they sit at the foot of the mountain where Moses is receiving the law of God and they do this act of rebellion and treason to the Lord that has saved them, giving glory to all of that, giving this golden calf the glory for all that had happened in Egypt I mean, that is a very horrific sin. And so 
who but the Levites are then called, uh, are, are mustered up now to shed the blood of their own brothers in a way to make up for the things they had done with the sword so hastily back in Genesis. And because of this zeal for God, even being willing to rightfully, right? This was divinely uh, given privilege. So it's not like a mob. It wasn't a mob rule. It wasn't just lynching. It was Moses saying, who is going to be the hand of God and bringing justice against the people of God? The Levites said, we will. So it it was sanctioned by God to do this. They shed the blood of their own kinsmen. You know, it's just, it's just a kind of a crazy, you know, story when you think about uh, how this all panned out. It's just a, it's a sort of a cursed situation, but also a blessed situation. It's certainly poetic and ironic. Um, and really what ends up happening from this, going forth, the Levites become this special tribe in the eyes of God who have been in a way consecrated to especially suit the Lord and serve the Lord because they were even willing to kill their own people for not obeying the commands of God. So who else more dedicated in a way to your cause, you know, he's God, than people who are willing to say, if anyone turns against you, whether it's my brother, my father, my son, I will put them to the sword. And so they get the special privilege. But then who do they become? Do they become like God's enforcers and his police. They just go around through the the tents, you know, whenever they encamp somewhere and they see someone not obeying Torah and then they, you know, chop off an ear or an arm or slay them. Is that what the Levites do? No. They become the priestly tribe. In other words, they are now going to stand before God and intercede for the sins of their people and not lay a sword on their brothers, but do what? Shed the blood of an animal for the remission of sins, to take the animal sacrifices of of their brothers and sisters for their sins and say, God, look on the blood of this sheep, this lamb, this goat, and forgive the sins of my brothers. Very poetic, isn't it? It's just uh, just an amazing imagery. You know, they're born out of this violence. They're born out of um, having to judge their own brothers. But what they become is those who are specially given to the Israelites to be his servants, to, inter- to serve at the temple, give their whole lives in service to God in a special, unique way, that the priesthood would only come from them and the high priest because now their job is not to shed the blood of their countrymen, but to shed the blood of these animals on the behalf of their countrymen. It's just a kind of a beautiful thing, but, but part of that now, going back to Joshua 13, is that they would have no inheritance of their own because they were going to live off of the offerings that were given. So they would not have to um, like till land or raise cattle because when the people gave their offerings of wheat and of animals, they were allowed to take a portion of that to provide for themselves. So they just have, you know, little cities and things where they could dwell in, but no special lot uh, allotment because they are set aside for the service of, of the Lord. So is that kind of, you're tracking with all that? I mean, that's, that's heavy stuff because even when I was studying, I was like, whoa, <laughs> I didn't know that. And I've studied, you know, I've taught about the Levites before, but I've never 
you know, tracked or put that together. Um, but just a fascinating story when it comes to Levites and why they just get this like little blurb in Joshua 13. Um, in any case, then, Levites become this special, unique tribe um, such that they don't even get kind of mentioned in the, the tribes of Israel. And that's why um, you get there, what, two sentences about them. Uh, the offerings by fire to Yahweh, God of Israel, are their inheritance, as he said to them. And so now you know what that means, that they're offering um, by fire, what that cost, how they got to that place where they were the people who did that. One uh, last thing as we go through, you see the, the boundaries of the land that's given to the people of Reuben, verses 15 through uh, 23. Um, you have mentions of verse uh, 24 through 28 of uh, the tribe of Gad and their boundaries. And then um, verse 29 through uh, 31, he mentions that half of the tribe of Nasa they dwell in this uh, specific land um, and uh, you get a little bit of a shout out to, um, no, it's, I'm sorry. It was in, I'm sorry, when he talks about the uh, tribe of Reuben, you get a, a shout out to Balaam. So if you remember the story of Balaam, the talking donkey uh, back in Numbers, that's referenced here. Um, that territory where that story happened is within the the territory of Reuben. So that's just kind of a, um, an Easter egg, I suppose, just like a, a little reference, a callback to something that happened in Numbers. Now, verse 32 ends, these are the inheritances that Moses distribute, distributed in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan east of Jericho. But the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance for Yahweh, God of Israel, is their inheritance, just as he said to them. So uh, wrapping up kind of this section with that story of the Levites. One last application. Uh, We've seen this before, and I've mentioned it before. Joshua doesn't mind pointing out the failures of the people. Um, you see in verse 13, the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Maacathites, but Geshur and Maacath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. Even uh, prior to that, as we said at the beginning of Joshua 13, this idea that there still remains much land to possess uh, seems to imply that there is a certain amount of failure to do uh, all that God had commanded, even though God had promised to do these things for them, but the condition was, will you submit and obey? Uh, this is, again, a unique feature of biblical literature. It doesn't shy away from saying that people are flawed. We know that, uh, uh, and, and we know that this is something intentional by God, to point that out, that we might learn from their mistakes and failures. It also just points out the obvious, that we are all sinners, in need of God's grace and faithfulness. If it depended upon us, if the only story here was that if you trust and obey, good things will happen, but if you don't trust and obey, you're done. If that was the only story, then all of us would be lost. But we know that God made that promise to Abraham unconditionally. When he told them that this blessing is coming for Abraham and for your children and your children's children, that was no conditions on that. So we know that there's also a story of grace. Every time that Israel fails, God doesn't owe them anything. And yet because of his own promise and commitment, talked about this a little this morning, by his grace, he offers forgiveness. He offers restoration, reconciliation, redemption. So even as we see so often, which is again very unusual for ancient Near Eastern um, literature and history, 
the constant owning up to failures and the obvious nature of the ways that they did not do all that God has commanded, and we see the reality then that God sure needs to be a faithful God or else who here could stand before him? Who here can say they've earned a place at his right hand? And so it is only through God's own grace, mercy, love, um, faithfulness that we could stand before him. And we know, of course, as Christians, that even in this passage, we see the kindness of God. Even in the Levites, we see the forgiveness of God. Even in the sacrifices that they make uh, made, we see a pointer to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who, who died as the perfect sacrifice for our sins, who is our perfect mediator. There is a wonderful acknowledgement that we can make simultaneously. We fail. Things should have been better. I could have done better. I shouldn't have done that. I messed up. And really acknowledging, embracing that. And on the other hand, saying, thank you, God, for your forgiveness, for your mercy, for all of your blessings. That's not a bad takeaway or a lesson to know that we can hold both of those in our hand. Yeah, I really screwed up, and I can take ownership of that. Thank you, Lord, for being forgiving. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. So uh, many other lessons, I'm sure. If you want to talk more about Joshua 13, feel free, and we can, um, we can talk more about that. But that's what I, you know, that's what I could glean from the passage as I study it. It's not the final word, so if you have more to share on that, I'd love to hear it. Uh, maybe we'll save that for a time uh, over dinner. So let me pray and bless our time and the rest of our time in the food. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, which tells us um, who we are. I mean, it's a mirror that reflects our own sinfulness, our own selfishness, our own pride. And Lord, thank you that we see that plainly. It's not just all good guys who never make mistakes, but rather a very clear picture and window into the human condition as sinners who, who fall short of doing all that you command and say. And so what can we do except be thankful that uh, you are faithful to yourself? that you make a promise and you will uphold it by your own, uh, for the sake of your own glory and honor. And that's all we can put our hope on is that you have said that by, uh, in the defense of your own glory and honor, you will redeem lost sinners. That is our hope. That is our trust. That is our plea. Thank you for Jesus Christ and his life and death and resurrection that is the guarantee of that promise. It's in him that we want to pray these things, and it's in him that we want to thank you for the food and for the time afterwards. Lord, may he get all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.